Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Amy G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Today's date is Monday, April 24th, and today we are reading in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 30 on the third paragraph. Today's readers are, and thank you for your service, Wendy M., Becky K., Meg F., Rebecca B., and Maura Z. The reference number for yesterday's special edition on Sunday, April 23rd, is 9866, and for this morning's Monday 7 a.m. meeting, 9686. So Sunday is 9866, and 7 a.m. today is 9686. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask for Rebecca B. to read the 12 steps. Go ahead, Rebecca. Hi, this is Rebecca B. from Boston, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to, to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Thanks for letting me do service. Have a great day. Thank you, Rebecca B. I will now ask for Mara Z to read the 12 traditions. Go ahead, Mara. Good morning, Amy. Thanks for your service. Mara Z recovered in Virginia, 12 traditions of overeaters anonymous. One. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, 
Each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Blessed problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do service in my past. Thank you, Mara Z. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. And if you go over here, you'll hear me say time. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speaker should be muted and try not to speak on speakerphone because that causes an echo. Today we resume our study in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the chapter More About Alcoholism on page 30. On that third paragraph that begins with, We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And I'm going to go ahead and ask Wendy M. to get us started. Go ahead, Wendy. Yes, good morning. It's Wendy M. recovered in Colorado. Excited to be on the line. All right. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, 
followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. So again, I'm Wendy M., recovered in Colorado. And Amy, thank you so much for your service this morning. Oh, I love this chapter. This chapter rocks. So the first thing I see, the first thing that's highlighted is the word control. And the miracle of this program for me is that it introduced to me words that I never, ever thought about, but that named my experience. And the key for me in terms of my freedom, my relief, my serenity in this program is when I see a word like control, never, ever thought that I was controlling, which I was trying to control constantly um, before this program, um, that that names my experience and it frees me up instantly. And that's what I get from this program, this freedom, this instant freedom. So it says here control, and control is about me thinking I have power. And control all my life is exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. Not only trying to control the food, right, with every, every remedy. I don't remember a day or a moment or an hour or a minute when I wasn't trying to control but I didn't know what I didn't know. I was swimming in it. I had no idea. I was constantly trying to control, either by under-eating, um, overeating, and then over-exercising. Um, you know, at eight years old, I was told not to eat anything fried, that that would fix it. Um, liquid diets, protein diets, powder diets. Even uh, in this program um, 12 years back, uh, having a tummy tuck. While I thought I was abstinent, you know, it's just unbelievable how exhausting trying to control everything. And it's not just controlling the food. It's controlling you. I'm trying to control you constantly. Um, you know, 60 to 63, how can I do it? Being loving, being considerate, being kind, still trying to control, or being vicious, you know, undermining and lying. So anyway, just, you know, the first step says we're powerless, you know, and when I'm trying to control, I still think I have power. And guess what? I'm not done. I'm literally producing and directing a show. And come on, you know, try to control all of the players on the stage, literally, you know. And every day, God's like, this is exhausting. And when it gets bad, you're going to remember to let go of the control. So that was one piece. The other thing I, I thought was really interesting is that over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. And you know what I say to that? Hallelujah. Thank God. Thank God I got so worse and so desperate, thank you, God, that I found a Vision for You Big Book Study sponsor, and I got entirely abstinent and completely recovered. Unbelievable miracles, but I had to get worse. Thank God. And when people come to me and say, you know, I, I think I want a sponsor, I say, how desperate are you? How willing are you to go to any lengths? Because it's gotten worse and worse and worse. So that, that is the gift. Um, and... I think, yeah, I mean, anyways, I just, I love this chapter. There's so much more to say about it, but, um, but I think I've said my piece for the moment. So grateful to be in this program, I can't even tell you. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Wendy M. Okay, who would like to share on these two powerful paragraphs? Let's chime in. Becky Sylvia. Lisa Becky. LJ. 
Becky K, Sylvia. Um, I heard somebody else. Lisa LJ. Lisa LJ. Anybody else? Reggie. Reggie O. Okay. Melanie C. Camille G. Who was after Melanie, please? Camille G. Oh, Camille. And I'm Hi, thank you. you. Okay, so let's go with this group. Becky K, Sylvia, Lisa, LJ, Reggio, Mel C, Camille, Camille, I didn't get your last initial, and me. Okay, Becky K, go ahead, please. Oh, hi, everyone. This is Becky K, Grateful Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Maryland. What resonates with me so much in this paragraph, but I'm going to just focus on one um, sentence. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which makes alcoholics of our kind like other men. Let me share with you, for those of you that don't know me, I'm 5'10", and I have very long legs. (laughs) So this really always hit me, men who have lost their legs. Let me just share a little analogy. I was always tall. I probably was born tall. (laughs) And I never really accepted my height. And and so as a result, I acted um, differently. I, I would slump over because I wanted to be a part of the group. And I would just sort of, you know, crunch over and... Fast forward to my adult life, I've now embraced the fact that I'm 5'10", and I accept it, and I stand bright and tall. Well, for the longest time, I didn't accept that I was an overeater. I tried everything, and I wanted to be like a normal person. I wanted to be able to eat what I wanted, and, you know, that old saying, have my cake and eat it too. Boy, I wanted it all, and I wanted to control you all, by the way, as well. But the fact of the matter is, when I took step one, I realized I was powerless, powerless over food. Step two, God can help. Step three, I think I'll let him. It was realizing that no matter what I did, no matter what I tried, I am a compulsive overeater. I am like a man who's lost my legs. That's it, period. Just like now I've accepted the fact that I'm 5'10 and I stand tall, I've accepted the fact that I'm a compulsive overeater. Nothing works. I've tried it. I've tried diet plans, food supplements, um, you name it, I've tried it. There's not, you know, every fad diet um, going back for the past 40 years, it doesn't work. And that's what this paragraph and those two sentences are telling me that, look, you have to accept who you are. And, and now I, I mentioned I'm a, gratefully, I'm a gratefully recovering compulsive overeater because through OA, I found that spiritual awakening that's helped me not only live life on life's terms, but live life on life's terms in a joyous, happy, free manner. So thank you for letting me share. Thank you so much, Becky. Sylvia, your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service. And so happy to be with all all of you visionaries this Monday morning. This is Sylvia F., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. And did remember to start my timer. This is good. 
Um, so this this paragraph in this chapter has multiple meanings for me, and um, I loved when I started reading this book many years ago. My sponsor had me change the word from drinking to thinking because um, I, you know I, it was it was easy when I first came in to finally go, oh, I've got this disease. Thank God, I know what it is because I felt so different and so crazy from from everybody else, and I didn't know why they all had this self-control over their food and why it didn't. I didn't realize that they didn't have self-control. They actually didn't have my disease. That was a gift to understand that. But then she had me change it to, um, we alcoholics and men are men and women who have lost the ability to control our thinking. And once I put down the food, I could see that I had this twofold allergy, that the physical addiction where I, I, if I started to eat something, I could not stop. But then um, the obsessive, the obsession of the mind, which was my thinking. And it says here, we know that no real alcoholic ever control, recovers control. Um, that, you know, that I'm always going to be this kind of crazy person. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I just like owning who I am. I like understanding that I am a compulsive overeater and that my crazy thinking comes out in weird stuff with food. And, you know, it's now to me, I don't, I'm not ashamed. I am relieved because if I know what I have and I admit it, it also means that I can treat it. And until I know what it is, I can't control, uh, treat it. And so, um, yeah, so I have completely, I never had control, I don't think. I was never one who could diet. I, I saw people be able to do the pay in ways and, or, you know, lose the 40 pounds. I was not like that. Um, I could either not eat or I could eat. I could not eat myself down to, you know, a little over 100 pounds or I could eat up to over 200. And um, I that desperation and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is what finally got me in here. You know, so uh, that desperation is a gift. Who would do this? But uh, what a gift it is to be in recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sylvia F. Lisa LJ, you're up. Good morning, everybody. Lisa L.J. from Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for your service, moderator. Um, I, I see, you know, the, the word control repeated, repeated, repeated throughout this. And, you know, I, obviously the author is trying to drive it home. But what I take from this paragraph is, in addition to the control, is the ability word. We have lost the ability. Um, for many, many years, I, I've been a compulsive overeater now that I look back since I was a child, um, always racing to get second portions, always racing through my food so I would get more food, um, you name it, um, you know, just binge eating, uh, volume eating, um, since I was young, but, but I had an ability to control it. I found an ability to control it. I never addressed it. Back, back then, I never thought it was a problem. 
because I had the ability to control my eating for a time. The, the trick was I was a compulsive exerciser. And when I got a disability, when I broke my feet and was unable to run, you know, 10 miles a day to keep the weight off, I suddenly went through my fat pants overnight into size after size. It, it was out of control. I couldn't couldn't exercise anymore. And just doing the eating I was doing was I, I felt like I was drowning. I felt like a drowning man. Um, I lost my legs essentially. I lost my ability to control. Um, I love that here and. It's okay to have a disability. People all over have disabilities. And to be able to acknowledge that this disability is going to be with me and have to face it and have to come into the rooms, you know, of regular OA to find that it's just another form of control um, and then to find vision was like, uh, you know, OA wasn't the last stop on the block. Vision was the last stop on the block for me because I'd never addressed what was eating me. Um, and doing the step work the big book way and living by the big book has opened new vistas for me of thinking. And really and truly, the neutrality, it's like an echo. You know, at first the echo's strong and the echo just fades away. That's how food has been. It's been a miracle because I never thought it would happen. And I'm just so grateful for the program and for vision and for the big book and all that came before me. And uh, with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Lisa. Reggie O., it's your turn. Thank you. Thank you so much for your service this morning. It's great to be here starting the week off in vision. And uh, well, the word that... Oh, sorry, I thought I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's okay. Amen. Uh, the, um, the, the, that word, you know, the control, is it just stands out all over the paragraph and stands out for me. Uh, I, I never knew that I was, I, I never even thought of control or trying to control things. I think because I, I thought I probably didn't have much control over anything, but I, um, I didn't try to, I, I tried to control my eating. It was kind of unconscious. I was, I was, a, you know, I think a lot of my life I've lived in somewhat of a fog, not realizing uh, what what I was really doing. It was just kind of like a way of life. And, uh, but I, you know, I just, I think about control in terms of honesty and dishonesty as well. And let me see if I can make some <clears throat> sense of that that this morning. Um, first of all, trying to control the uncontrollable is very uh, incredibly tiring and stressful. And that's what I, you know, looking back over my life today is what I realized that I did for so much of my life, trying to control the uncontrollable, you know, trying to control, oh, uh, trying to control my environment, trying to control what other people thought of me, trying to control my <clears throat> my weight. <clears throat> and I started doing that dishonestly. When I first got a driver's license, and I don't even think I was overweight at that time, but any time I had to put my weight down, as I recall, once I was out of childhood, I would always like subtract 
two or three pounds or five pounds or something from what I really weighed so that when it went down on paper, it would look like something else. And that was, you know, so that well, I look back and see that in some ways, you know, the part at the beginning of my dishonesty that had to do with my eating. And then once, you know, I, I, I grew up and then, of course, I tried to control my weight and my appearance. Uh, I tried to control by hiding. I tried to control by, I was a very subtle controller, you know, very, very subtly <clears throat> manipulative. And I didn't know that, you know, I just, that was just the way life was. And at some point when I started trying to control my food as a way of life, uh, that it, it was, it was quite, quite different, but I, uh, you know, I when I came back here in August and I look back, I look back over my life and I think, oh my gosh, you know, my attempts to control the uncontrollable, which is life, and my my being a compulsive eater and the compulsion itself, uh, was really wore me out. I, you know, I think I'm still recovering, <laughs> really, from from the 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 effects of trying to control everything that wasn't controllable. And I'll tell you, it's such a to be able to have a way, uh, this beautiful, spiritually designed plan to live my life, to uh, clear out the things that actually made me want to control and the dishonesty that was associated with that, and to realize that, you know, I can really place this uh, in God's hands, everything for the most part, you know, I can place everything in God's hands and take the load off my back, you know, that I've thought I've needed to carry for most, most of my life is the most, uh, uh, I, I don't do it all the time, you know, I'm, I'm still in, in, in that, that recovery because I'm a human being, but but I do know that I can always, you know, there's always a place to turn. It's always God. And the, the more I'm here, the more I listen to this message, the more I work the steps, you know, that just continues to, uh, the freedom continues to uh, to uh, increase for me. And uh, I, I love noticing when I, when I start to control something, I'm really grateful to be aware of it because I have absolutely no desire to control anything in my life these days because I also know that's a part of, you know, the dishonesty that I was living with for a long time and didn't really know that because, I, you know, when, when I'm controlling, I'm, I don't let people know and tell them that I'm controlling. So anyway, I pass with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Reggio. Melanie C., please go ahead. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Nice to be here this morning. Hello, everyone. My name is Melanie C. I'm a recovered compulsive reader from Oregon. Reflecting on this, of course, in hindsight, over the time that that um, this deal got my attention, truly got my attention at age 16 years of age. I had no idea what it was. In our community, we didn't speak of such things. I grew up in a community of, of 400, and my graduating class was 17, one, seven. And so the folks that I had around me in my life um, seemed to be eating food, using food, celebrating food in the same way that I was taught and I did. And, and so I had no way of knowing that it was wrong. But I did have a thought at 16 years old and that said this, if I don't do something about this, I won't get out of this deal ever. And I had a panic feeling in my heart and my gut. Mm-hmm. Don't know where that came from, but I can tell you it was overwhelming. By that time at 16, I had been dieting for nine years. I started my first diet in second grade. That's what we did. We dieted. And um, nine years already by the time I was 16, and I didn't understand or get this deal at all. Um, And 
then so with that kind of thinking, I set about trying to be like my girlfriends. My I was um, much heavier than they were. That's where this issue came from. And they were teeny tiny, and I kept trying to be like them, trying to to identify them like them. And I was driven. I was driven to do that sort of thing. And so I want you to understand, if you can, that then schoolwork wasn't something that I could even focus on because it had everything to do with being demoralized and where my energy and my efforts were at. All of my development from that point forward, honestly, in reflection, was about getting myself down to a normal place and weight. And so I was driving into my head this diet mentality, this equalizing mentality. I'll be like you and I'll be good enough if I could only simply, if I could only simply. And um, that's all that I was able to think. And so I'm fast forwarding uh, when somehow, someway, my mother, God bless her and rest her soul, um, introduced me in 1989 to Overeaters Anonymous. And I went into this deal like, like, like I was driving into the other things that I did because I knew it was a solution and the answer. And I took in there my weigh-in pays and I took in there my, my um, compulsive exercising and, and I was so thrilled that after the meeting um, on, on Friday we would go to the buffet and, and do what we do at a buffet and then I would go and I would do this, you know, biking for hours and hours and running for hours and hours a couple two or three times a day and um, I was thrilled I had come and I, I arrived in Overeaters Anonymous and I knew that it was the miracle and thank God you guys gave me this ability to to run like that and to bike like that and to go to the buffet afterwards and never have any consequences of the buffet boy you overeaters did that for me I want you to tell I want to tell you that this is my thinking and this is what we're talking about in this chapter it is the mental obsession about being driven and the confusion the confusion about what I thought this deal was all about and it took it took much more 17 more years of driving this into the ground in in the rooms of OA for a person like me and I'm only talking to you about the way that I was thinking and and how desperate this thing is and how that this disease wants me dead before it broke through because of the steps understanding what entire absence was, somebody took me by the hand, jumped into this hellhole with me with a flashlight and walked me out. And walked me out without humiliation, without demoralization, walked me out until I could understand because I was so mentally, mentally disturbed, understand what entire absence was and help me apply the steps to the disease once the disease surfaced. And I can tell you that I have a bona fide second chance of living that is beyond my wildest dream it is a dream come true and I'm grateful I mean beyond grateful I have no words when we get to this point it's the voices of angels that can only express and those that I can identify with heart to heart and with that I pass thank you thank you Melanie Camille go ahead press star one to unmute Camille Okay, well, we can come back to you, Camille. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and share. My name's Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. You know, I've always learned, or I've learned, especially in, in these meetings, Vision for You meetings, that if it's in italics, it's screaming at you to pay attention, or they'll find ways of saying the same thing over and over again. And here we have in these two paragraphs, it's saying it over and over again. It says here, over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. That's the first paragraph. And then the second paragraph, 
In some instances, there was brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. So, you know, what's being said here is that, you know, this disease is cunning and baffling. And, yes, there was a period of time where I thought I had some control or maybe I didn't. You know, it was like Russian roulette every time I, you know, put food into my mouth. But the one consistent thing for me was that this disease is progressive. And it mentions that in the first paragraph is that, you know, it always got worse. It always gets worse. And that was the case. I was progressing downward worse and worse with my disease of compulsive overeating. I've also heard that this room, that, that the, in the rooms that, you know, the three Ds of this disease, denial, delusion, and defiance. And I deluded myself into thinking that I could control it. I mean, why wouldn't I? I didn't know any different, as others had said. There's, you know, there's a three whatever billion dollar industry based on dieting and using your willpower. Of course I would try to control it. My family's motto is all it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. It never occurred to me that my mind was the issue, that the mental obsession was the issue. If we go to the doctor's opinion, it talks about why we eat, because we're restless, irritable, and discontent. But we also need to pay attention to a very important, what it goes on here to say is that the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. This is really, really important stuff, because for me, what I thought was my reality was a falsehood. What I thought I could control, I could not control. Again, as others had said, I could not control the uncontrollable, but that was my reality. You know, I didn't know any different, and I believed that if I just tried harder, that I would be able to somehow control the food that I put into my mouth. I didn't understand the physical allergy, and even if I did, I didn't understand that there wasn't an issue that I couldn't use my willpower with. So my mind was the liability here. You know, and it also goes on to say that not only are we, we don't grow new legs, but also that there are the, the physicians agree that there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. I needed to come not only to the decision of who and what I am, a, a, an admittance and acceptance of a compulsive overeater, that that's who I was, but I also had to understand that there was never, ever, ever going to be going back to being a normal eater. I had to absolutely surrender that I was never, ever going to be a normal eater. And that if that is the case, 100% acceptance and submission, then I better find some way to deal with this. If my control isn't going to do it, if my thinking is going to get me back to the food every single time, and I'm never going to change and I'm always going to be a compulsive overeater, what am I going to do about it? So these two paragraphs smash home again and again the fact that I'll never have control, it will never change, I am who I am, and boy, I better do something about it. And thank God we have these 12 steps. Thank God we have a way to be transformed, miraculous transformation that Melanie was talking about. And with that, I will pass. So who would like to be next? Charles H. Hi, this is Camille G. Oh, Camille, you're on there? Okay, Camille, let me just take yeah, a list of people and you. then I'll come back to you. So sure. I've got Camille sure. and I have Charles. Carly Carly, last initial? C. Carly, John K. Sherry K. Deborah R. Sherry K. B. And Deborah R. I don't know if we'll get to you. Let's go with that. Okay, Camille, Charles, Carly, John, Sherry, and Deborah. So, Camille, go ahead. Good morning. This is Camille G. in New York City. Um, 
what I did is I looked up the word control, and it says to, the, to determine the behavior or to supervise the running of. And um, what I appreciate the most about vision is how, how darn honest everybody is on the line. And so my, my truth is I still, there's a part of me that still believes that I can align my will with God's and I'll lead and God comes along for the ride. Um, and I've got that backward. There's no doubt about it. Because as I read about control in this sentence, um, the delusion that we're like other people has to be, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. No real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times we were regaining control. Um, we were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Um, we are in the grip of a progressive illness. We never get, we get worse, never better. Um, I just see that I've got some more work to do here um, right on step one because there's a, there's a part of me that believes still that um, under eating is my remedy. And um, I want entire abstinence and I want freedom and only in, in truth, which is what I hear on this line so frequently, will I have that. Um, so I just wanted to share, um, the, uh, this is a real poignant paragraph for me, uh, the use of the word control over and over smashes it home to me that that's something I'm still I'm still walking hand in hand with. So thank you, thank you, thank you all for your honesty. Thank you, Camille. Charles H, you're up. Thank you, Amy G, for your service. Charles H, a recovered composable reader. You know what's so encouraging? Uh, this is the first step of recovery. What is so encouraging about? page 30 and the entire book is that, um, <laughs> you know what, you know, I hear people say the first step, you got to get it perfect. You know, I, I, I know a, a great man that, that got lost in the woods for 40 years, and he he, he didn't come out that bad. So what, what am I saying? I'm saying is it's hard for a compulsive overeater to give up control, even in vision. And, and just to smash this illusion, there's no such thing as uh, vision is not different from Overeaters Anonymous. Vision is an Overeaters Anonymous meeting um, that's dedicated, excuse me, dedicated to the close study of the big book, the program of action, the first 164 pages. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. And you know what? Everything is under construction. The biggest room in the world is, is improvement. <laughs> you know, as you go through this process, as you age, as you, you know, get to your goal weight, as you know what I mean? Like, I can't control it. I don't know about you. Maybe you can come in here and do something. And what else is encouraging is when people get real and say how long they've been in program, how long it took, I think the newcomer can can get hope from that, right? Like, we ain't coming here on no winning streak. And it, it wasn't nice out there, you know. It wasn't nice out there. Life and, and, and the substance is always waiting around the corner. See, I can't control this thing. You guys did a great job in talking about the the four um, the four times control is mentioned um, in, in this, this text, in this this reading. We can't control this thing. That's why we're here. You know what I'm saying? But together, if we study this thing and take – I love what Ruth M said yesterday. That's my sister. She keeps it thorough. If we don't take this first step into our heart, we will always be struggling. And the first step is always – under construction, because there's going to be some things coming down the pipe later on. And with that, I pass. Thanks. 
Thank you so much, Charles. Carly C., your turn. Hello? Carly? Carlisa C., yes. Oh, Carlisa C. C. I beg your pardon. Please go ahead. No problem. Thank you. I just I just wanted to emphasize something that I, I that has made the made a world of difference to me and I shared it earlier and I want to share it again. This whole idea that we are people whose legs will not grow back. Um I have a I have as I'm sure many people on the line personal experience a family member who had a, a his left foot amputated. And I can say for sure that it has not grown back, and he doesn't expect it to grow back. And that I can also say from my own experience in, in being around other people who have the similar dis, disorder, I'll say, um, is that they have had to come to terms with this fact in the most practical, visual way. Um, if I think of my own self as a person who has lost her legs, then I know that each morning in order to be able to walk, I have to put on my prosthetic, that I have to be trained and fitted um, to use that prosthetic, that if that prosthetic gets out of alignment, and they do from time to time because we use them and they are pieces of equipment, that if I do fail to get that prosthetic finely tuned, it will tear open my wound. For me, the, the, this leg, losing our legs is a perfect metaphor because as far as I know, and as anybody who's worked with people with um, amputations, no one, no human being has ever grown a limb back, ever. We can get some very good matches, but they don't grow back. If I'm willing to conceive this to my innermost self, then I know each day as I walk in the day that I have to fit, put, put on my prosthetic and I have to make sure it's fitted well and I have to take steps to do that. And as I get out of alignment, then I need to get back in step. And that is what these 12 steps have taught me. These, and, and it's a continual walking of the step. It's not just one walk and that's it. In fact, if that's all we do, we're in trouble. So I, I would just, um, visuals help me, and with that I will pass. Thank you. Thank you, Carlisa. John Kay, it is your turn. Good morning. It's John Kiernan, compulsive overeater in Los Angeles. Thank you, Amy and Monday. Um, you know, my favorite chapter, I've been saying it since you started, and the thing about control, um, you know, so many of us have been able to use our brains and control a lot of things in our life. I know, uh, you know, I could, I did, uh, in so many ways, and that was the frustrating part of addiction that took me years to get. It's in this one area, I just not have control. And, and you know, it took me years to really get that. And the other thing was it, it took me years within program to realize I needed to do total surrender because I had what I think in a lot of ways was a classic OA story. I came in and the abstinence very hit me on the head and it was easy and it was simple. And of course, great is that easy and that simple. I gave it away, figuring I'll get it back. And then I spent years slipping and sliding, slipping and sliding because what I realized later was my first time around, I was just doing another diet and I was really good at diets the first time. And OA 
the first time around was just another one of those diets the first time around. But to really get any kind of recovery, I needed to surrender, and I needed to get into the book, and I needed to um, be uh, studying the steps. I, I, I had originally, you know, OA was that group therapy we talked about, the dieting with group support. I needed to get here, and the main thing is I needed to surrender. And it took me years, even within programs, to say, well, I'm going to get my absence back. I'm going to get, you know, I can't get my absence back. God can give me my absence back. But I'll tell you what I can do, I can give it away. I can give it away anytime I want. And the other thing I just want to say about this is we are like men who have lost their legs. Um, I know with my other disease, um, substance uh, since, uh that was definitely the case. I could, I started, you know, doing other substances at about age uh, 17, 18. And I think I could for a short time do that and, uh, in a controlled manner. But I passed that. Uh, level and became uncontrollable. But when it came to this disease, I have to tell you, my personal opinion, I was born without legs. I never, I can't remember any time in my life where if I was given a choice to eat, I could just do it and stop, leave. Like like Harlan says, if, uh, the only time I ever ate one for you is when there was only one in the bag. And um, for me, you know, my disease reached a critical level from the beginning, as near as I can tell. And you know, it took years to go, you know what, I've had a lifetime trying to control this. I can't do it. I need to uh I just need to do what they tell me and surrender. And that's the great thing, you know, and these these chapters that are all about step one really make that clear. And with that I pass. Thank you, John. And we're gonna wrap up here with uh Sherry K B. Sherry, go ahead please. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, everybody. This is Sherry KB in Northern California, Grateful Recovered Compulsive Love Reader. Thank you so much for your service. What a great meeting this morning. I'm just loving the shares. Um, and I'm going to try to bring out something else that we've been discussing is that, you know, I was looking at, I've been reading this over and over again. It's just an amazing paragraph. It has so much in it. Um, I'm looking at that it says, we know, we know we're real alcoholics. We'll ever, we'll never recover um it also says we are convinced that we people of our type are in a grip of a progressive illness and we get worse never better we have tried every imaginable remedy always still a still worse relapse um you know it's it's telling us we know we know we we're convinced here you know i don't know how much you are convinced but i'm definitely convinced and what i do know is i've always tried to control the uncontrollable all my life, in a lot of areas of my life, not just with the food, but with people, places, and things. And, uh, you know, that is my disease. I, I, you know, I've made a career out of doing, trying to control this disease. Um, I've spent miserable hours either eating it or trying to control it or trying to manage it, micromanage it. Um, I've spent most of my life doing that, and that's a miserable way to live. Um, and, you know, just feeling beaten down, and I remember somebody telling me about three weeks ago, Sherry, if you can control this, then maybe you can control the waves in the ocean. Um, and I'm a visual person, so I can't imagine me trying to control the waves in the ocean. I don't know about you, but I can't. And I just, oh, I didn't put myself on a timer. Um, anyhow, I just, you know, I can't do this alone. I, I have a disease, and the disease tells me I don't have a disease that I can control it. So, you know, here we've got four times in one paragraph you know, about control, and um, 
I just know that it's not only just about the food, it's in my thinking, thinking that I can do this, thinking I can do it alone. You know, my disease will tell me I've got this, I can go now, I can go do this all by myself, thank you very much. And, you know, my disease works against me. And, you know, I was I was in a situation yesterday where I realized, you know, all the years that my countless vain attempts to try to control the situation has made me miserable. And I don't want to do that anymore, and I surrender. That's the whole thing about just saying I need to surrender and to surrender to a power greater than myself. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry KB. And we're going to wrap things up here. I'd like to thank everyone who has shared. And we are now going to have a close. We're now going to close with the reading of the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. So we'll go ahead and have Meg F. If I'm excuse me, Becky K. If you could please read the vision for you, that would be great. Yes, Amy. Thank you. This is Becky K. A grateful recovered compulsive from Maryland. Our book is. Oh, Becky, we lost you. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Sorry about that. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will continually disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what day the man who still is sick. Answers will come if you're Obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. Welcome to the house for you and help others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.